0: if you like what you're listening to, support this podcast on Patreon. Patreon Patreon.com, search Phil Dawson, or find a link in the show notes and join up. It's very much appreciated. Thank you for listening. Chapter 8, Taunos The newcomer arrived unannounced at the Palace of Artifice in Krug, capital of Yosha. It had been a long journey from the southern coast and he was bone-weary from his travels. Had he been sensible, he would have bedded down for a day or ten, paid for a suitably tailored gown, then called for an official appointment through established channels. However, the newcomer was unschooled in the ways and practices of high-yoshin society and presented himself directly to the palace, his letter of introduction in the vest pocket of his traveling cloak and his gift in a satchel slung over his arm. The Palace of Artifice was a separate wing of the royal palace itself, flung off from the main buildings in an eruption of new construction. There was no one to receive the traveler at the main doors, which surprised him slightly, but there was no one to block his entry either. Indeed, there seemed to be a steady flow of clerks, librarians, and petty officials milling about, but nothing that looked like an armed guard or even a helpful guide. He stopped one of the clerks, a round, friendly-looking fellow with an armload of scrolls and vials. This individual explained that the chief artificer could be found in the orniary, a central-domed workshop at the back of the palace, and that the visitor could reach it by going up the stairs toward the rear, right at the first intersection, left at the second, Rightish, but not too right at the star-shaped one, down one more flight and there he would be. The clerk never asked why the tall, blonde-haired man was looking for the chief artificer in the first place. The friendly clerk's instructions also left something to be desired. It took another 15 minutes, and two more helpful clerks, for the traveler to finally locate the orniary, which was, as promised, a large dome-shaped structure mounted on the back of the main building. The newcomer noticed that the circular roof of the building was built on a sliding pivot so that it might be unbolted and moved to one side. Within the orniary was a form of controlled madness. Along the far wall was the frame of one of the fabled ornithopters, frozen in mid-explosion. Each of the pieces was mounted separately, with inscribed lines showing what piece fit where. A group of young students stood along one side of the trundle, operated lathes gently shaping candlewood spars. Along the other side, an ornithopter was in the midst of a construction, as another group of young people stretched canvas over the wings. In the center, standing over a huge table littered with plans, was the chief artificer. His hair was pale blonde, almost white. While shorter than the newcomer, he commanded a presence that made him seem taller. 3.4 inches to the first phalange, shouted the chief artificer to lay the workers, who dutifully pulled out their calipers and began measuring. No, no, he stalked over to the crew assembling the ornithopter. Place the skin over the lead grommets along with the wing first. That will allow the wing to unfurl naturally. As the newcomer watched, another clerk elbowed his way past him and handed a scroll to the chief artificer. Urza scanned the paper for a moment, shook his head and made the clerk wait as he returned to his paper-covered work desk. He pulled out a stylus and quickly edited the message. "'And tell him I need the supplies by noon tomorrow!' he snapped impatiently. "'No later!' The clerk pushed his way past the newcomer and back into the main building. Suddenly, the visitor noticed the woman standing alongside one wall. She stood so still among the pandemonium that the traveler at first thought her a statue. She was dressed in a simple blue gown and her lustrous dark brown hair spilled over her shoulders." Her arms were folded in front of her, and she wore an expression on her face that hinted she disapproved of the entire scene around her. "Uh, "'Excuse me, miss?' said the newcomer. "'I was wondering if—' the woman turned, and the newcomer choked on his words as he recognized the full lips, the dark, fiery eyes, and the fine lines of her face. At once he realized whom he was addressing, and he managed to gargle, "'Your Majesty, forgive me!' He was well on his way to the floor." His knee had just touched the hardwood when a soft hand touched his shoulder. "'Arise, young man,' said Caleb Bin Krug, princess of Yosha, and wife of the chief artificer. When he looked up, she was smiling slightly, as if his manner amused her. He felt the blood rush to his face. I- "'I'm sorry,' he said. "'I had no idea who you were.' "'We don't stand on much ceremony here in the lair of the chief artificer,' returned the princess." Out on the main floor of the dome, Urza was bellowing at the lathe workers. "'I said 3.4, not 3.2! I need a tolerance no more than 0.2 for these struts!' "'Is your husband?' the newcomer stopped and began again. "'Is the chief artificer free at the moment?' "'I can't tell,' said the princess, with a catch in her voice. "'I've been standing here for ten minutes, waiting for him to notice me. "'If I have to wait fifteen, I usually assume that he's too busy.' The newcomer looked at her face more closely, and nodded. Perhaps it would be better to come back tomorrow, he ventured. The princess laughed, a tired laugh. This is about as unbusy as he ever gets. Is it important? The visitor reached in his coat pocket and pulled the envelope from its hiding place. I'm his new apprentice. Kayla opened the letter and scanned it quickly. The newcomer held his breath as she did so, fearful she might find some impropriety within the letter of introduction that would prevent him from even talking to the mighty Urza. "'A toy-maker?' she said at last. "'From Jorlin, on the coast,' said the young man quickly. She nodded. "'We summered there when I was a girl. Got too hot even for Krug.' "'Well,' said the traveler, "'I have been making toys there for the past few years, "'full journeyman and everything. "'People thought my work was fairly impressive "'and they suggested that I apply to be one of his apprentices.' He let the statement trail off with an embarrassed shrug. It had sounded so logical back in Jorlin.' much more logical than it did now, explaining it to the most powerful and beautiful woman in Krug. "'I see,' the princess said, and that amused look returned to her face. "'His apprentice!' "'One of them, anyway,' said the traveler. "'Please,' said the princess. "'All these are not apprentices. "'They're drones toiling around the King Bee that is Urza. "'Assistants, students, extra sets of hands, that's all. "'Apprentices have higher demands put on them than this lot. "'They usually don't last more than a month at the outside.' He's a hard man to keep pace with and very demanding man to work for. As if to prove her point, Urza let out another shout. I said I needed point two tolerance here! Lathe number one, are you using some number system I'm not familiar with? There was laughter among the younger lathe workers as one blushing youth returned to his machine. Perhaps I should come back later, repeated the newcomer. No time like the present, Kayla responded. He'll be just as bad tomorrow and I won't be here to help. Urza! "'Husband, a moment, please!' The chief artificer responded to his wife's call by holding up a single hand. With the other hand, he held a stylus, checking a long column of figures. He did not look up. "'Of all the—' muttered the princess. Several decidedly unregal lines appearing on her forehead. "'I swear, he spends every living moment working until he's exhausted. "'Then he wakes up in the morning feeling he's fallen six hours behind schedule because of sleep. "'Urza!' The hand stayed up as if to show he was listening, waved back and forth a little. Perhaps this will help, said the visitor, reaching into his satchel and pulling out his gift. What he produced looked like nothing more than an inanimate hunk of rope and chain. He flicked a switch at one end of the chain and it suddenly stiffened and struck forward. It was a snake, suddenly come to life in his hands. Kayla jumped at the transformation. The snake leapt across the open space as if on invisible wings, landing among the papers littering Urza's table. It burrowed among them, emerging directly beneath the chief artificer's notepad. It raised its head, rattled its tail, and rasped a hiss warning at the Argivian scholar. The entire ornery went dead silent. The lathe stopped, the students wrestling with the wing, tarps froze, and Urza paused, stylus in hand, regarding the snake's fang-filled mouth. Then he leaned forward, and tapped the snake's snout with the stylus. It rang out with a hollow sound, and the serpent immediately curled into a small coil. The chief artificer looked up, a broad smile on his face. "Who did this?" The newcomer blushed. "That would be me." Kayla stepped forward with the letter of introduction. "This is Tonos, a toy maker from Jorlin. He wants to become your apprentice." Did not let her finish, but took the letter from her hand. "Toy maker, and that is one of yours?" "One of them," replied Tonos. "Why would?" "'asked Urza. Metal would be a lot more long-lasting.' "'Wood's lighter,' answered the young man. "'And yarrow wood produces a more natural sound for the snake when it moves. "'Metal versions tend to clatter.' "'So you tried it,' said Urza, his eyebrow raised. "'Good. That's very good. Spring-driven, I suppose.' "'Clock mechanism,' said Tannos. "'I was told you work as a clockmaker.' "'For a time,' said Urza abstractly. "'His hands were busy examining the snake.' probing, bending, pushing. Then I retired to join the government. Less heavy lifting, Kayla began. Darling husband, my father is expecting, but was silenced by an upraised arm. It's very lifelike, the artificer observed. Did you study snakes to make it? We have lots of coastal snakes, said Tanos. That one was based on a kind of viper found along the coast. I made it for my own amusement as kind of a practical joke. Urza, Caleb began again, but was completely forgotten by the chief artificer. What about birds? asked Urza. I've been trying to improve the lift ratio of ornithopters. It depends what you want, said Tanos. Soaring birds like gulls or even vultures might be inappropriate as models for ornithopters. I should think you want ones that can launch quickly from a perch, like predatory owls and other raptors. Urza's face brightened, and at that precise moment, Taunos knew he had secured his position. I had not considered that. "'said the blond-haired artificer. "'I always considered a bird to be a bird regardless, but you are correct. "'Form follows function, and function determines form. "'Here, take a look at these plants. "'Tell me if I have a soarer or a fast launcher.' "'Tanos looked over the papers, littering the desk, and inhaled deeply. "'They were all manner of ornithopter plants, "'showing different wing configurations and positions. "'Some of the machines resembled things he had seen in nature, "'while some looked as if they would never fly under any circumstances.' Suddenly, he remembered the princess, who was trying to get two words in edgewise as he and Urza talked. But when he looked up from the plans, she was gone, and Urza was shouting at the lathe worker again for greater precision. The princess's heels were shod with metal and always sent a message as she moved across the palace's polished marble floors. Sometimes it was a leisurely tapping, reassuring the staff that Her Majesty was thinking as she walked. Sometimes it was a slow, methodical clack, which usually meant she was walking with someone else, usually some official from the hinterland who was getting a local tour, and occasionally it was a skipping staccato produced by her run, much less common now than in times before she was married. The message being tapped out at the moment was a warning. She had just been to see her husband, the Argivian artificer, and was not happy with the results. The stern wrapping of metal on stone was enough to send most hardened courtiers fleeing in terror and to cause even the most experienced servants to reverse their directions and quietly back up the way they came. As a result, Kayla had empty halls and full thoughts as she stalked along the way leading to the drawing room. She fumed as she walked. He was busy. He was always busy. Given sufficient resources, he would devote all his time to his projects. The ornithopters, the metal statues, the great plotting beasts that had suddenly appeared one morning in the Rose Garden. He would work until exhausted, and he would work everyone around him to the same state. If she did not send a guard for him, he would sleep in that ordinary area of his. Sometimes she did let him sleep there, but that did not slow him down. Of course her husband was not the only guilty party here, she realized. Her dear father was just as much of a cause of her husband's neglect. I was asking for something new. Some special favor for this baron. Some particular device for that temple. Something to make one guild or another's life easier. A new way to haul water. A new way to harvest crops. And of course, the chief artificer could not refuse his warlord anything. Particularly if it was an excuse to develop some new device. It was a perfect match. Urza liked to build things, and Daddy liked the things that Urza built. It didn't matter to the warlord how Urza created his wondrous devices, and Urza never thought about what her father wanted the devices for. All of their scheming left Kayla alone. She stopped and stamped a foot hard on the stone floor, causing several of the hiding servants to wince and wonder if the marks she left could be polished out or would require replacement to the stone. She took a deep breath and tried to calm down. Actually, she told herself, things were not as bad as they might be. The Yoshin people, after a brief period of concern about the warlord's new son-in-law, quickly warmed to Urza. The wedding helped win over the common people and most of the merchants. The minor nobility was vastly relieved to see that Urza did not care for political power beyond the limits of his work table. And the temples? Well, the temples were a small problem at first. Despite their supposed enthusiasm at the wedding itself, Argivians were nastily irreligious, and the devotion of various gods, real and otherwise, was a major political consideration in Krug. Not to mention the fact that all the assembled religions were keenly aware that they themselves had the chance to admit this Urza the Argivian into their temple schools, but had turned him away because of his heritage. Things were a little problematic for the first few years. With what with the churches all waiting for some misstep or announcement from Urza that would trample on one group or another's beliefs, Urza himself provided the solution to that potential problem. First, by staying in his workshop, he provided little provocation to the temples, Second, he managed to wrangle from the Jalum Tome a small bit of old Thran science on the temple's behalf. It was a small device, a small amulet with a sliver of active power stone mounted mounted on its back. It emitted a low-pitched hum that served to keep the wearer calm, and in doing so provided a modicum of protection. Naturally, anything that smacked of the healing arts was snatched up by the temples, who immediately pronounced Urza to be a wonderfully fine fellow, even for an Argivian. So the temples were happy, the merchants were happy when more people flocked to Krug, hearing of their magical amulets, and the common folk were made happy by merchants hiring more help, and by the ornithopters that were now seen flittering among the towers, attracting still more people to Yosha. And Kayla told herself Daddy was happy because he had metal statues, ornithopters, and wonders others did not have, and a son-in-law who delighted in making more. In fact, Chief Artificer Urza was making everyone happy in Yosha, except its princess, his wife. To make matters worse, Daddy had mentioned to her that he did not have a grandson yet, an heir to carry on the title. Was it her fault that the warlord kept her husband continually occupied with other matters? Kayla knew there were other options for intermittent companionship, of course, but she had always found them distasteful. When she was growing up, the matron had all manner of stories of queens and princesses who dallied with some handsome young courtier and kind-hearted commoner. But most of those stories were cautionary tales that usually ended with one or both of the two people involved dead or in exile. Somehow, it did not seem like a good set of choices to her. But she was still young and beautiful, and there were those who looked at her in a fashion that her husband did not have the time for. It was nice to know that one could turn heads, she reflected. Kayla was sure that the tall, brawny toy maker from the coast had almost swallowed his tongue when he finally recognized her. It was a little thing, such as that, that made her feel good. She thought about the newcomer, Taunos. He was tall and broad-shouldered. She had no doubt he had drifted into craftwork after spending his youth hauling in the sardine catch off to Jorlin Point. His blond hair was in continual disarray, giving him a lost puppy-dog look. There was a man, she thought with a smile, who was in need of a good young woman to put his life in order. And his manners, pure hinterland. You could even hear the gulls when he talked. Under court tutelage, that would change soon enough. Of course, from the start, Tano seemed to have developed a rapport with her husband. If her husband was sometimes unreachable by her, he might listen to a man who spoke in the language of inventions, devices, and science. Kayla shook her head. Part of her wanted to see that handsome young newcomer survive the grind of working with her husband. Tano seemed like a nice young man, but part of the princess knew that if he was to fit into her husband's world, he would have to alter to fit Urza's needs. She had learned that if one did not fit into his plans, one was simply ignored. She was walking slowly now, her heels a soft tap against the marble. The courtiers knew that the storm was over. Whatever its cause, she had passed several of the servants, who bowed briefly, and they carted fresh linen silverware, more of the inevitable scrolls about the palace. Finally, she reached the drawing room, took a deep breath, and entered. The Privy Council was already meeting. Her father, the warlord, was already there, hunched over on one end of the long table. On his left hand was Rusko, who had arrived at the palace with Urza and showed no sign of ever decamping. Indeed, the clockmaker had become a semi-official liaison with the merchant guilds and Krug, and would only part with the title, and the prerequisites included, when either he or Krug was no more. On the right side were the captain of the guards and the sensual. The captain had been the warlord's squire back at the dawn of time, but had aged less gracefully than her father, and in fact spent most of his time napping. The sensual looked much as he had on the betrothal day. Probably his own frantic nervousness prevented any illness or misfortune from getting within twenty feet of him. The three men were Daddy's closest advisers, and herself, of course, always welcome and always paid attention to. The four of them formed the Warlord's Privy Council. Is he coming? asked the Warlord, sternly. Is he ever, replied the princess, trying to keep a bright tone in her voice. No, he's wrapped up, breaking in his new apprentice. The Warlord looked, a question at Rusko, who merely shrugged. new one to me, I bet this one lasts a month at the outside. The princess took a seat next to Rusko. The clockmaker used to burble in the royal presence, but that had diminished and finally stopped some years before. Kayla realized she missed the fawning just a little bit. "'What's the situation along the sword marches?' asked the warlord. The captain of the guard sniffed and stifled a sneeze. Kayla always noticed that direct questions caused the old man to sneeze. "'Steady,' he mumbled." The Falaji are getting more and more brazen with each month as talk of one of the tribes is gaining control over the others. Another tribe besides the Tomaku? asked the sentinel nervously. The captain fought off another sneeze, then replied, The city Falaji are token heads, and I've heard they even have agreed to go along with this new desert clan. Usually the tribes of the deep desert spent most of their time raiding each other. Except now, said the warlord. They're raiding more caravans now or demanding exorbitant tolls, added Rusko, or in some cases, caretaker fees for additional caravan guards they provide. It's extortion, sucking the lifeblood of the merchant class. And our patrols? inquired the warlord. The captain pinched his nose. We have three companies along the marches. When a caravan reaches Yosha territory. Territory, It's safe. There have been no raids in Yosha proper at all, but we don't have enough men to accompany every caravan across the desert. What about the ornithopters? asked Kayla. The question evoked a full-fledged sneeze, followed by a handkerchief produced with a flourish and a loud blast of the nose. "'We could send them along with the caravans,' the captain said at last, supporting Kayla's suggestion. The warlord shook his head. "'I wouldn't want anything like that falling into Falaji hands. How about using them to patrol the marches?' The captain blinked hard. "'We could. We don't have enough of them right now.' "'Why not?' demanded the warlord. The captain looked if his query would produce another sneezing fit. So Rusko came to his aid. The limit is not in raw machines or even in young men and and women foolhardy enough to want to fly them. The problem is power. The ornithopters run off an old Thran device, a power stone. The metal statues do the same. There aren't a lot of them in Yosha. Urz has been working to try to mend the broken power stones, but it's an iffy job. We can build all manner of ornithopters, but they're just pretty kites without the power stones. That's problem number one. The warlord grunted, Any place we can get more stones? Essential spoke up in a meek voice. The Argivians have uh, collected a large number of stones over the years, but they use them for their own devices, and they are scouring the desert for more, I understand. There was a pause. Kayla could see the wheels turn on her father's head. Whenever he started thinking like this, the result was normally trouble for someone. Captain, he said finally. "'I want you to send an exploration parties into the desert. "'They will carry descriptions of the stones "'so they know what to look for. "'We'll ask Urza about the most likely places to find them.' "'This last was not a question, "'so the captain nodded in agreement. Uh, "'But what if our parties meet Argivians "'looking for the stones?' squeaked the Central. "'They'll probably be relieved to meet "'other civilized men in the desert.' "'as opposed to those Falaji fanatics,' snapped the warlord. "'But just to be sure, I want you to frame a letter to the Argivian king. "'Tell him what we are doing, but frame it in terms of mutual defense. "'All of us against the savages in the heartlands. "'That should calm him down enough. "'Anything else?' Rusko spoke up. "'One thing, your majesty,' he produced from beneath, voluminous folds of his vest, a small dish, and a bottle of black powder.' With the chief artificer's successes, you've decreed what we keep our eyes open for are other devices, either in old books or the marketplace that could be used by Krug to better protect itself. I think I have something that may be useful. The former clockmaker laid the dish onto the table. Into it he poured a small amount of black powder. The powder was crystallized into small spheres and reminded Kayla of shriveled peas. Rusko then rose and lit a taper from a nearby oil lamp. He touched the lit taper to the crystals, and they popped and burned brightly, setting up a cloud of noxious smoke that hung over the table. There was too much for the old captain of the guard, who already had his kerchief over his face. The central looked as if he was about to bolt for the door. The warlord waved a hand through the cloud. Goblin powder, he grumbled. What of it? Goblin powder, agreed Rusko, also called dwarven fire black or black dust or burning bright. It's a chemical concoction that the goblins and dwarves of the North use. "'And usually blow themselves up in the process,' commented the warlord. Kayla leaned away from the table in search of clean air. "'Because it is volatile, tricky, temperamental,' replied Rusko. "'It's hard to use because you have to be close to it in order to light it. "'And if you're too close when the fuse burns down, you get blown up!' "'It is used in small amounts for children's poppers and other noisemakers,' "'the central ventured. "'But it is no practical use.' "'Ah,' said Rusko, holding a hand up. What if you could set a fuse and throw the powder at an enemy before it explodes? Or better yet, if you could fit the container with a flint, and it causes a spark when it strikes the earth. Sounds temperamental as ever, said the warlord. You have to drop it from a great height to create such a spark. If you drop it from a wall, you blow up your support in the process. Rusko nodded. And if you drop it from, say, Ornithopter? There was silence around the table. Then the warlord started to chuckle. And the enemy could not throw it back. Yes, I like that idea. I have your permission to investigate further. Then asked Russo. Yes, said the warlord, still chuckling. Yes, you do. Oh, don't tell Urza about it. At least not yet. If he can't show up for meetings, it serves him right. Essential sniffed. At least it will show him the others have good ideas. Agreed, said the warlord, slapping the tabletop with his hand. Then we're adjourned. We have a lot to do. We should get to it. But by that time, Kayla was already halfway to the door. Seeking to escape the stench of burning powder, her heels clicking rapidly against the stone.